everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. In this podcast with Dr. Randy Frost, we continue the conversation that we began in podcast 15, where we cover the treatment issues involved in working with hoarders. Dr. Randy Frost is a professor of psychology at Smith College and an internationally known expert on obsessive compulsive disorders and compulsive hoarding, as well as the pathology of perfectionism. He is the co-author with Dr. Gail Steckety of the New York Times best-selling book, Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things. Dr. Frost explains that with hoarders, it doesn't work to simply have the fire department or the health department come in and empty out the house. Within a relatively short period of time, the hoarder will fill the house again. The, the third feature are emotional attachments and, and beliefs about possessions, and these are plentiful. So. So one of the types of attachments we see is a beauty and aesthetics. I talked about the bottle caps. Another is opportunity. We've sometimes thought about this as a disorder of opportunity. It's as though people with this problem cannot relinquish an opportunity. All of us, as we move through life, learn that if we want to take advantage of one opportunity, we let others go. But what if we couldn't let anything go? Many, many people who have hoarding problems have told me virtually the same thing. I want to experience everything. I don't want to lose out on anything. Irene said it best in in stuff. She said, uh, life is a river of opportunities. And all these things flowing through my house are opportunities. They're like a river. And I just want to stop them long enough. I want to dam up that river. So I want to stop them long enough for me to take advantage of all of them. But in doing so, she prevents herself from being able to take advantage of any of them. Other emotional attachments, we we see uh, objects being sources of comfort and emotional sucker. So uh, one day when I showed up at Irene's house, she said, you know, I just had such a bad week. I, I just wanted to come home and gather all my treasures around me. As though somehow these possessions would offer her the kind of emotional comfort that she that she needed. We also see a sense of identity developing um, through these objects. So, uh, as an example, we we had uh, one fellow in our treatment program who uh, thought of himself as the guy who buys and sells things, and so he spent all of his time out buying things for relatively little money, mostly things on sale, with the idea that he was going to sell them. But he went for 30 years and bought all these things, absolutely packed uh, um, his house, but never sold any of them. But yet he couldn't stop because this was who he was. This was the way he perceived himself to be. Now, are these some of the things that you explain in the first session in your manual? 
these are the things. This actually takes several sessions. And what we do is we 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 work through their experience with their objects and create kind of a map of the types of attachments they have, the types of information processing deficits that they have, so that they understand what's, what shape they're in. And they understand the nature of the beliefs that they have to tackle, the nature of the attachments they have to, to work on and so forth. So it actually is, it goes on for several sessions. And they accept this or they see themselves as this is being talked about. Right, right. Yeah, it's remarkable. When I, whenever I do a workshop, even if it's for professionals, um, a third of the audience uh, tends, uh, sometimes more, tend to be people with problems. And they will come up afterwards and said and say, you know, you were talking about me. That is my experience. So yeah, one, once we get through this, they really see themselves in this, and it helps them um, understand what it is they need to do with, with respect to uh, challenging these things. So then, what comes next? Well, once we have this model sort of outlined, there's a little more to the model, but once we have this outlined, then we move into the active phase where we focus on these three different features. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what we do. For acquisition, we do we start with something that's really very simple. While they're in the office, we ask them to write down some reasons, some questions that they think they should ask themselves before they buy anything. Because most of them come in, they know they've got a buying problem. But So we have them write these questions down, and, and for the most part, they're the questions all of us would ask. Do I really need it? How soon am I going to use it? Do I have enough money for it? Do I have space for it? And so forth. Then we have them take those questions, and sometimes we have them laminate them. Sometimes we just uh, type them up and give them to them and ask them to carry them with them wherever they go. And if they want to buy, if, they're, if they experience the urge to buy something, they're supposed to take out these questions and read them. And if they can answer these questions, then they're, it's perfectly fine for them to buy this item. What that does is it brings the context of their life back into the decision. Remember, I talked about the attentional phenomena. These are not the, the questions that they're asking themselves typically when they're out acquiring. And so what we want to do is we want to bring those questions back into play when they're making these decisions about buying things. So that's the first thing we do. It's quite simple, and it, and it's, it works pretty well. Would one of the questions be, do I need this? Yeah, yeah. And, and we don't give them the questions. We have them generate the questions. Now, oh. we will help them if they can't come up with it. But what we're trying to do here is to get, help them work on this problem. So we, we, we get them to do a lot of this work. Because if you say, uh, do I need this? Well, of course, they would, a person would say, well, yeah, of course I need this. Yeah. And so then what we would say is, well, how soon will you need it? Uh, do you have anything else that might suffice for it? You know, so, so what we're doing there, and, and from their perspective, when we have them generate these questions, they're not thinking about any particular object. They're just thinking about what should I ask myself before I buy something? And so we're trying to get them to think of, well, what do I need to consider? How do these folks get to treatment? I mean, do they really want to change? It seems to me that in order to change, you have to want to change. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, we don't quite understand the, the, the insight issues related to hoarding. Many people think that people with hoarding problems – 
don't have insight into their problem. Now, I don't think that's true. I think what's happening is we're seeing different sides of the insight question. So if I'm a family member of someone with a hoarding problem, and I have been arguing with this family member of mine for years about throwing things away and getting nowhere, from my perspective, that's because they've got no insight. They don't understand that this is a problem. But what happens with these folks is when you, when you address these problems, um, if I come into this discussion with them and they know that my role is going to be to try to get them to throw their stuff away, they're going to be defensive and they're going to be arguing with me. But if I come in, in my perspective, saying, you know, I would really like to understand your perspective about these things. Now I'm going to get a little bit different answer. And the answer we, we tend to get when we take that approach is a, a, a two levels of responding. On, on the one hand, what we see is a general sense where they understand, yes, this is a problem. And I have a problem with too much stuff. I have a problem with not being able to organize it. And I'm in trouble and I need help. Okay, so at that level, we see insight. But when we get down to an individual item where they pick up a 10-year-old newspaper and they're considering whether or not to throw it away, that's when this insight is much more troublesome because they don't quite see. They, 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 the attachment is still too strong, and they look for arguments for why they should be able to keep that thing. And they make those arguments. So so what we have to do in treatment is we have to start where they are. And we see people coming in for treatment. We In, in one of our big studies of hoarding, we, we surveyed, gosh, over uh, 800 people with this problem. And we asked them if, if there were a treatment for this. This was several years back. If there were a treatment for this, would you seek it out? And over 80% of them said they would. So this insight thing is kind of funny because it looks like people will come for treatment, but the treatment itself is pretty hard because they have to get to the point where they look at these individual items and change the way they think about these items. Is that something that comes uh, sort of in the middle of your manual, like step 15 or something? Yeah, it does come more in the middle because we've got to get through all this stuff first. And one of the things we found is that it, it, for the most part, it, it works better if we tackle the acquisition first. Now, we do more for acquisition than just giving them these questions. One of the things we do is we treat, we treat their uh, inability to, to resist their urges to acquire in much the same way that we would treat a physical fitness routine. And the idea here is that we need to train them to tolerate the urge to acquire. And so we create a hierarchy starting with a situation that has a very small amount of urge to acquire up to one that's very difficult. And we start out with what we call drive-by non-shopping. So we have them pick a store where they have difficulty resisting acquiring things and drive by. And if it's a difficult problem, we have them drive by fast. And then we have them slow down. Then we have them go in the store. And eventually we have them go in the store, identify an item, pick it up, think about how wonderful it would be to have and put it back and walk away. Wow. So we're training them to tolerate this urge. And, and it's important because we can, we, if we start getting them to get rid of stuff, it's more stuff is coming in. We're not going to make much progress. So that's why we like to do the acquisition first. 
I think I saw somewhere you have a technique called the downward arrow technique. What is that? We do. And this, this is something we use to try to, to focus, get them to focus on the reasons why they're saving an item. So we'll start by asking them, what would it be like if you threw this away? We don't ask why you, we sometimes ask why you, you keep it, but most often we ask, what would happen if you threw it away? And, and the downward arrow technique is a technique where we continue with that same line of questioning because if someone says, well, if I throw it away, I might need it tomorrow. And then our next question would be, well, what would be so bad about that? And so the response might be something like, well, then I would feel kind of stupid for, for throwing it away. Uh, I, I would have, uh, have wasted my opportunity to use this thing. And then we come back with basically the same question in the downward arrow sort of format where we're saying, well, so that happened. Let's imagine that you threw it away, you needed it tomorrow, and you felt dumb because of it. So what? Why? What's so bad about that? And we keep going in that way until we get to the kernel, get, get to something that's a little, a little more uh, key and core in terms of their thinking about this object. And at that point, that's when we, we, we try to get them to challenge that thought. And one of the ways we do that is to try to get them to start thinking of their beliefs about possessions, their thoughts about possessions as conditional and like a hypothesis. Now, let me give you an example of a very common one. One of the things that, that often happens with people reporting problems, sometimes they can't articulate an exact reason why they're saving something. But what they say is, I wouldn't be able to stand it if I threw this away. I would be so upset and so depressed, and I would feel that way forever. We're in the middle of an interview with Dr. Randy Frost, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. In uh, one of the early cases where we were developing the treatment, we, I was treating a woman who who had a pretty serious hoarding problem. We had her bring in trash bags full of stuff to the clinic. One day she identified the top of a board game. The rest of the board game was gone. Just the top was the only thing left, and it was kind of ratty because it had been on the floor. And what I asked her what it would be like if she tried to throw this away, and she said, if she tried to throw it away, it would feel like death. And and then I asked her, well, if if you threw it away and it felt that bad, how long do you think that feeling would last? And she said, well, it would last forever. And this is one of the remarkable things in this particular case. This woman really believed this. I mean, it seems like a crazy belief, but she really believed it. So our task then is to get her to think about this as a hypothesis. And so it got framed in that way. If I throw this away, it will feel like death. And so that's a hypothesis. And if I throw it away, I will feel like death forever is another hypothesis. It's an if-then statement. Now, normally when we do this, especially if we're focusing on distress, we ask them to rate it from zero to 100. So I convinced her to try to throw this away and see what happens, to do it as an experiment. And that's how we go about this. We don't say, we want you to try to throw all this stuff out. What we say is, we want you to experiment with this. So I know you don't want to throw this thing out, but are you willing to throw it out as an experiment to see what it's like and to see if this belief you have comes true? And she agreed to that. And so she threw it out, and two minutes later, I asked her how she felt, and she said, 
well, I would rate it as 100. And she was pretty upset. I would rate it as 100, but she said it doesn't feel like death. So what that means is her hypothesis was disconfirmed. And I called her a day later. And I said, so how are you feeling about it now? And she said, you know, I would rate it as a 10 now. It doesn't bother me too much at all. So her second hypothesis was disconfirmed. And now what we do in treatment is we come back to this and say, okay, let's take a look at these hypotheses, what happened, and what sense do you make of it? And the sense they make of it is, okay, now I have a new hypothesis. And that is, if I throw something away that I'm really afraid of throwing away, it's not going to feel as bad as I think. And the bad feeling isn't going to last as long as I think. So now we have a new set of hypotheses. And what she has to do to test these hypotheses is to go about throwing things away to see if she has that reaction. So this is how we go about trying to break this attachment, try, try to break through this difficulty discarding. Because we, we can't really tell them that it's okay to throw this thing away, that they don't need it, because they won't believe us. They have to experiment on their own in order to come to that conclusion. In the next to the last uh, session, then, what happens? Not the last, but the penultimate, the next to the last one. In the penultimate session, often what we do is try to uh, focus on how they're going to schedule their time to work on this. Because typically their home, although it may have improved significantly, it's not completely clutter-free. And again, the problems with attention, with organization and so forth means that it's difficult for them to do things on their own. So one of the things we try to do in, in this process is we try to get them to enlist other people to come over to their home. Now, often it's not we don't care whether these other people are helping them with their with uh, getting rid of things or not. The real reason to have them there is a motivating one. So uh, you know what it's like if someone's coming over to your house, you clean up. And we see this with people who hoard as well. I mean, some of our worst cases, when we show up at their home for the first time, they'll tell us, I just spent three hours trying to uh, to clean up, getting ready for you to come. Um, so it's, it's, it's a universal behavior. And so it's something that we can take advantage of in treatment. The sooner we can get someone coming in to visit, even if they just come and, and sit, uh, the better, because that motivation is what we really need to keep going, especially toward the end of treatment, where we want to, we want to get them doing these things on their own rather than relying on the therapist. Does the therapy stick? I'm thinking about weight loss for instance, because they say now that with losing weight, it takes a full year for your body to adjust and not want to revert back to its old weight. Uh-huh. And, and is it is this like this? Uh, I mean, is there a period of time and then it kind of really goes away or what? Well, we, we have collected data for up to a year after the end of treatment, and the, the gains seem to hold pretty well. There are people who, who backslide, and, and we do know that you, you really have to maintain some degree of attention to, to these things. We know that, that um, the problem is it doesn't just go, completely go away, that, that people will have to keep working at this over time. But from, from what we've seen so far with our data, it looks like people maintain the gains they make in therapy. I have another question. It's about people who are the opposite. 
the thrower outers. Uh huh. <laughs> there are some people who can't. Once they've read a book, it's out. Yeah. People who just can't have anything around them much. A couple towels. You know, thrower outers. I wonder if that's just the opposite of the coin. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the opposite or not because hoarding is such a complex set of behaviors. I don't know if they have the opposite opposite kind of acquisition tendencies or not, um, and the, the organization uh, tendencies or not. But clearly, people throw things out don't suffer the same kind of consequences, or even it's not clear that there are any negative consequences from throwing things out. And, and that's really a distinction. We, I often get this question about whether there's a comparable disorder that is the opposite. I'm not sure there is because I don't know that the negative consequences of, of engaging in that behavior really uh, are, that, um, are that impactful. Now, with the forced cleanups, it's a public health menace. I mean, I've read that some people die after they've had all this stuff taken out of their house. Yes, it is a trauma for people who go through it, uh, a trauma that, that is difficult for some of them to live through. We know of suicides that have happened and heart attacks, people die because of it. Uh, so it's, it's a dangerous thing to do, especially if it's someone in, a, in vulnerable shape. In addition, it doesn't work. And I think many health departments now have sort of caught on if you go in and you clean out someone's house and that's all you do, you're going to be back again within a year and facing the same kinds of problems because you've changed the condition of the home, but not the behavior. And it's really the behavior that's driving this thing. And so uh, now not only will you be facing the same kind of of a uh, house you were facing before, but now you've got a person who was traumatized last time and is less likely to be cooperative. And so I think for that reason, many health departments have changed their approach to this. And, and one of the approaches that, that uh, is, is gaining ground now is the, the reliance on hoarding task forces in various communities. These are, are organizations with representatives from many different um, agencies, the health department, the fire department, elder services, housing, mental health, uh, and so forth. And they get together to try to come up with some kind of a, a solution that works and integrate the, the, um, the services of these uh, different organizations. I've had a number of questions from people who are public guardians with concerns about the, the hoarders because very often they don't have any family and the responsibility for their lives gets turned over to public guardians and uh, yeah. it's a very difficult issue for them. Any yeah. advice for public guardians? I think one of the things that I would do in, if I were a, a public guardian facing these kinds of things, I would try to find a local hoarding task force and to, to create what we're trying to do here, for instance, in Western Massachusetts, is through the task forces to create a community of people with this problem who will help to motivate each other. And that's one of the reasons why we developed this Buried and Treasures workshop. The idea here is that these are attempts to change the way I live right now. Okay, without having to assume that I'm crazy, without having to face the, 
you know, many people will not agree to go to therapy. And so to get around that problem, we need other ways of engaging them in the process of, of trying to get control over their stuff. And so to, to try to put together a community, we, we have the Buried in Treasures workshop is quite easy to run. We've developed a facilitator's guide so that anyone can pick up this guide and with the Buried in Treasures uh, book can run one of these groups. And the, the facilitator's guide is free. It's available on the International OCD Foundation website. So the same advice would go for therapists too? Absolutely. Absolutely. It just doesn't seem to be something you can deal with on a one-to-one. It takes more than that, I think. It takes, it, you know, it takes to maintain the motivation. These groups are, are remarkable because when people with this problem get together, they really do provide themselves, each other with a great deal of support. Is there contagion? I mean, in addition to support, and the other side of it is, oh, gee, you collect that? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that we that is dealt with in the facilitator's manual is this issue of, you know, what are the boundaries here, and and what do we want to avoid getting involved in, and, and so trading stuff is one of the things that in this group is a part of the rules for following the group. No trading. No trading. You can't trade your stuff for my stuff. Right. <laughs> it won't work. <laughs> it's still the same amount. It's a zero sum game or something like right, that. Right. Right. Anything you'd like to add before we close? This has really been so interesting. I think we've covered the watershed. I think a a good resource is the International OCD Foundation website. Uh, The address is ocfoundation.org. They have a hoarding center there with the most accurate and up-to-date information about hoarding. And, you know, hoarding is is slated to be a new disorder in the new version of DSM-5, which comes out next year. I do want to thank you again, Dr. Frost. First of all, for starting getting involved in this work X number of years ago was really, you're really making a contribution. It's very uh, fascinating and fun. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been very stimulating. Great, great. Thanks for talking to us. That was Dr. Randy Frost, and I'm Barbara Alexander. You can hear the complete interview with Dr. Frost and learn more about him at our website, www.ongoodauthority.com. You can hear many other interviews there as well. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.